Well, today we start a new series on 1 Corinthians. When I'm preaching, we'll be looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. So please turn with me to 1 Corinthians and chapter 1. Well, you may say, well, why 1 Corinthians? Why not Romans? Why not Colossians? There are so many of the New Testament letters, and it's difficult to choose between them. Which should we bring? Which should I bring in terms of uh, a series to you? But 1 Corinthians has really been in my heart for a number of months. And uh, it's a wonderful letter. It's a challenging letter. I wonder when the last time you read 1 Corinthians. It's, it's a very rich uh, letter. And there's a number of points, touch points, really, between Corinth and the culture in which we live. Culturally, there are a number of points of similarity, which I think help to crystallize why it's a good idea to think of some of the topics, some of the subjects here. There are wonderful passages in Corinthians about the church of Jesus Christ, about the need for church unity, about spirituality and what true spirituality is, about freedom of conscience, about the Lord's Supper, about the use of gifts in the church, and the priority of love. A wonderful, poetic definition of what true love is. How we should worship truths about the resurrection and the glorification of believers. It's practical, it's wonderful, it's enriching. I trust with God's help and grace, it will be something that will fortify our faith, strengthen our faith, inform our faith, direct us, lead us more to the Lord Jesus Christ, and see how the gospel of the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus himself is the cure, is the remedy for so many of the issues that we have in the Christian life. So I trust it will be a challenging and yet an enriching series for us spiritually. But before we get into the letter deeply, we need to understand a little bit about Corinth as a city. I think that gives the background. We read together in Acts 18 something of Paul on his second missionary journey. Paul had been speaking to the Greek intellectuals, the Areopagus, in chapter 17 and bringing the truth of the unknown God to them. He'd been distressed. He was at the center of intellect and cultural thinking, reasoning and Greek philosophy. And then he moves to Corinth, which is a very, very different kind of city with a different culture and a different reputation to Athens. So I have three C's for us to observe this morning. The first is the culture. We're going to think about the culture. We're going to think about two other C's, and I will reveal them as we go on. So the first one, culture. Now, the culture of a city is shaped by its history. Shaped by its history, it's the same with every city. So Corinth was a city-state and part of what we know today as Greece. Who's been to Greece? Anybody been to Greece? Yeah, you've been to Greece? I've been to Greece. Hannah and I went to Greece a number of years ago before we had the children. We went to Corfu, quite a very beautiful island. Uh, there's the Greek mainland, there's a series of islands, and um, it's uh, a lovely place to go to. Now, at the southern part of Greece you have um, what's called the, get this right, the Polyponese. The Polyponese, which is a geographical part of Greece, okay? And you've got a very narrow strip of lands 
and you've got the mainland, you've got lots of islands as well. Okay, so Greece is quite spread out in one sense. Greece today is about 10 million um, inhabitants, a lot less in those days. But the Peloponnese, now if I think about it, you're looking at me, so it's going to be on this side here. It's almost sort of crystal-shaped in one sense. There's a connection uh, with a narrow strip of land which is about four miles wide, okay, and it connects to the rest of Greece. But the, the, the Peloponnese is a, a, a bit of land which separates the Aegean and the Adriatic Seas, okay? And if you're coming from Western Europe and sail around the Peloponnese to go towards the other side of Greece and Northern Europe, it's an incredibly treacherous journey for, for, for mariners and uh, for boats, shipwrecks, all sorts of problems. Uh, people hated going that way. So what would happen is ships would come from uh, Western Europe, from Turkey, around that area, and they would come. And uh, what they would do is they would come to a port south of the Corinthian city-state. And the ships would offload their cargo, and the cargo would be taken across this four-mile strip of land to the other side, and then they would be loaded to another boat, and they would go on. Okay, So it's like a time-saving device and it would save a lot of the risk of going around the Peloponnese. Well, that strip of land was called an isthmus. In geographical term, an isthmus. It's great when you do a series, you learn lots of new things that you didn't know before. An isthmus, okay? And that trade route went straight through Corinth, okay? So that was a really key area. There were two ports, the one at the, the kind of southeastern and on the northern part of the Corinth city State. So rather than going on this 200-mile journey, just cut through there. The Emperor Nero tried to cut a canal through there, gave up. There wasn't one cut really until around 1893 that the Corinthian Canal was put there. So in terms of the culture, in terms of the geographical location, it was very much on a trade route. If you wanted to go from west to east Greece and go to the Peloponnese, you went through Corinth. If you wanted to go to northern Europe through that way, you went through Corinth. So it was a key trade route for merchants, traders, travelers. It was a place that was on the route. It was a commercial center, Corinth was. There had been a settlement there for centuries. But 200 years before Paul went there, this thriving city, this thriving Greek city, was invaded and flattened by the Romans. They smashed it to pieces. It was in ruins. Then the uh, Roman um, emperor, Julius Caesar, he had the foresight to rebuild the city out of the ashes, to make it a commercial center again. And that happened. And uh, it thrived, and it became a very wealthy, cosmopolitan city. It had a reputation for being at the cutting edge of Mediterranean culture. It was a well-known, key city-state. Very prosperous, and it was possible to go north or south, east or west, without going through it. So it just gives you an idea. So that's the city that Paul goes into in chapter 18. He doesn't go into some sleepy port that is, say, in the south coast of Cornwall, where there's a little fishing village. That wasn't Corinth. Corinth had about half a million inhabitants. 
even more in its most prosperous times. It was huge. It was massive. It was over, overwhelming in a sense as to how big it was as this place. So because it was rebuilt by the Romans, Latin was the key language, even though it's part of Greece. It was the capital city, Achaia. It was ruled by its own Roman proconsul. Gallio was there. He was in charge for the 18 months when Paul was there. And the church is thought to have been planted between 51 and 52 AD. So if this place had been destroyed by the Romans and they rebuilt it, who populated it? Well, it was populated with freed Roman slaves. There were Greeks there as well. There were Jews there. So it was a cosmopolitan city. It was a commercial city. It was a cosmopolitan city. A melting pot of different ideas, people groups, ethnicities. There weren't many nobles. Not many well-known there. Not only was it commercial and cosmopolitan, there was cult worship there. The city was dominated by a 2,000 feet high Acro-Corinthus. At the top of the hill, there was a temple to Aphrodite, or Venus, the goddess of love. And the temple was served by about a 1,000 priestesses in the temple grounds. In the daytime and at night, the priestesses came down and did their business and trade in the city. So it was a sensual city. There was also the temple to Apollo, another god. Worship to the male body as well. So the popular religion and devotion was leading the people where? It was leading them to corruption. And that's another defining characteristic of Corinth. It was commercial, it was cosmopolitan, it was corrupt as well. All kinds of sexual immorality, part of the worship. That was the ethos of the city. It was a corrupted place. Archaeological evidence shows, excavations have shown, that the lifestyle was full entertainment, indulgence. Does this sound familiar? Status, kudos, popularity, money, success, pleasure. They're all the idols at the heart of this city with an aggressive and pervasive paganism, the pursuit of the good life. There was a saying, there was a verb, to Corinthianize. To Corinthianize meant to commit sexual immorality, to be an immoral person. To Corinthianize a person, there's another saying, not every man goes on the way to Corinth. So that just gives an indication of the kind of city it was. If you travel back in time and you walk around the city, the things that you would hear and see, they wouldn't be unfamiliar to Western society, post-Christian. Sexual ethics and so on. So as it says in Psalm 11, 
If the foundations are destroyed, what should the righteous do? When Paul goes to the city, he sees all this. He, he, he has this view, as it were, of this city, of its ethos, of its culture, of its commercialism. This amazingly huge and impressive city. What does he do? Well, he does what every apostle should do, is preach the gospel. If the foundations are destroyed, if the foundational things of God's order and God's ethics are destroyed, what should he do? Preach the gospel. That's what he did in Corinth. Chapter 18, he preached the gospel. What happened? Crispus is converted, the leader of the synagogue. Others are converted. They hear the word of God and are baptized, and the church is formed. He works with Aquila and Priscilla. Silas and Timothy join him from Macedonia. A church is born. That church starts to meet in the house of, in the house of Titus Justus next to the synagogue and soon outgrown that location. It's amazing, isn't it, that there aren't any barriers that God cannot remove to saving people. There aren't any people too hard, too far gone, that cannot be saved and brought into the light and faith in Jesus Christ. God can save everyone from a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, many gods, whatever the ethics, whatever the background, whatever the sexuality, complete spectrum. God is able to save people. Turn us from touch points between Corinth and our own culture. So firstly, culture. Secondly, concerns. Let's get into the letter a bit more now. Concerns. So it's been some time. Paul, is, the, the Paul has been at the church. He's prayed for its stability. He's prayed for its growth, but it's vulnerable. In this kind of environment, why would it not be vulnerable? People have been converted. Everyone who gets converted later on in life, what do we do? We bring baggage into the church. The baggage of our backgrounds. Baggage that takes time to unwind. Baggage that we might repent of and get rid of, and yet something can trigger us to pick it up again. There are concerns. Things are starting to get out of hand in the church. People are starting to slip back into old patterns of thinking. And there is a believer named Chloe. She is a prominent member of the church. And she takes steps to make Paul aware of what's going on. And we'll see here as we go through the letter some of the concerns that uh, she had. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same things and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household. Chloe's got a message there. She's raised concerns of cliques, another C, cliques in the church, factions, developing. The unity of the church had been shattered. It becoming fragmented. Small groupings, party spirit had developed. And Paul was dismayed when he heard these things. 
Verse 12, now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, I'm Apollos, I'm of Cephas or Peter, I'm of Christ. These small groupings within the church. And what was it doing? People there were putting boundary markers out. Okay, I'm part of this group. I'm part of Apollos' group. I'm putting a boundary. What is the test of true spirituality in the church? Is that I'm belonging to Apollos. If you're with us, you're part of the group. You're within this boundary. You're following the right way. You're not Paul or Peter. You know, we're the true people within the church. Boundary markers. Who is in? Who is out? We know what it's like, don't we, in life. You know, sometimes people say, well, who is it who gets the job? Well, it's the one who's in the right golf club or been to the right school. Boundary markers. Who is in? Who is out? Political parties. There were some good boundary markers. Baptism is a boundary marker, isn't it? It shows visible profession that you're part of Christ's church, that you are following him, that you've joined the church of Jesus Christ. You've publicly made that known. It's a boundary marker. But people put other boundary markers in place. Chloe is grieved and she gets poor now and he's distressed about it when he hears. Who are the true ones? Who are the ones who are, as it were, this is elitist spirit? Came to the Lord's table. You've got the rich and the poor. Boundary markers according to wealth. Cliques. Spiritual gifts. Who are the most important? Those with these gifts. What's your gifts? You've got tongues, preaching. Well, you're not part of this group. Boundary markers. can be the same today, can't it, in the church? We can create boundary markers, and we'll get to this when I speak on this properly um, another time. But we can place boundary markers in terms of what we wear. Somebody comes in. Oh, we don't wear that sort of thing in here. Some churches can say that, can't they? Some churches are shirt and tie and suit people. Somebody comes in without that, oh, it's, um, yeah, not feel part of them. Or other churches are open-neck shirt and chino churches. And somebody comes in with a shirt and tie and a suit. Well, well, you're not really, nobody, boundary markers, yeah? It's wrong. We're the church of Jesus Christ. Shouldn't be these things. So, cliques, that's, uh, what is it that can identify us? You know, Bible versions, what we wear, how do we identify ourselves? My, my favorite preacher is so-and-so, or I align myself with this. You know, we're to align ourselves with Jesus Christ, his word. So we need to be careful. That was a concern that Chloe raised and uh, Paul deals with in this letter. Really important. Secondly, corruption. You know, the Greek philosophy coming back into the church. What was Greek philosophy? It was dualistic. Okay, so in that sense, it said that the, that the spirit is good and salvation is all about your spirit and going to an eternal state spiritually. But the body is something else. And what you do in the body really has no bearing on, on the spirit. And these, this dual, this two-track way of thinking in Greek philosophy. Of course, the gospel, we're a whole beings. We're body and soul. And it's wonderful as you read about the resurrection later on. These amazing truths. Because God cares about body and soul that we have, to look after our bodies and our souls on earth. But this corruption 
uh, in, in thinking coming, Greek philosophy coming into the church. It's a real problem in the early church, but it can be a problem today as well. People saying that the body doesn't really matter, as it were, and, and uh, sin is, is, is something that is done in the body, and yet my spirit is right, I come to worship, and yet I, uh, what, what, these two things are separate, but they're not separate. Chapter 5, all kinds of horrible sin. I don't know how we're going to deal with that on a Sunday morning. Maybe it's on a Wednesday. Who knows? Immorality, defiling the church, things that were outside of, of that. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexuality among you, sexual immorality among you, such as not even among the Gentiles. Who reported that? Chloe's people. They reported it to Paul. Who were they? Who are these people who reported this? We'll turn to chapter 16. Chapter 16. And uh, what's interesting here is that Paul says at the end of the letter, verse 17, he says this, I'm glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. For what was lacking on your part they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Maybe it was these. Maybe they were sent with Chloe's report, Chloe's people, Chloe's friends, to explain the cliques, the boundary markers, the corruption, the softness on sin. You know, in a culture, a, a, a moral slackness around them, isn't it easy for sin to creep into the church? You know, some people say that the church only lives slightly above the standards of the world. The problem with that is that as the standards of the world drop, the church's standards drop as well. It could be a real danger in terms of morality. So Chloe's people have reported these things. There's a softness on sin, and some, and maybe gone back to some of this worship or this, uh, the immorality you can read about in chapter 6 as well. So there's the report of Chloe, which informed Paul and caused him to write this letter. Not only that, though, if you turn to chapter 7, verse 1, it says this. It says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. So the church had written to Paul wanting advice from him on a number of different subjects. Now concerning things of which he wrote to me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman and so on. He deals with marriage, he deals with singleness, and he, 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 he answers their questions. And in chapter 8 it says, now concerning things offered to idols. They'd obviously asked him questions about that as well. And he's responding to their questions. And he's bringing the truth and bringing pastoral wisdom to them. Um, and on it goes. So there was two things. There's the report from Chloe's people, and there was the letter that they'd sent to him asking him questions. And these are all the concerns. Concerns. So let me give you one more concern, and then we'll move on to the cure. So we thought about cliques. We thought about corruption. Thirdly, we think about carnal wisdom here. Carnal wisdom, this Greek Wisdom. What is wisdom? The Greeks prided themselves on wisdom. They thought they were the ones who were wise. Plato, Aristotle, Greek thinking, great 
thinkers, humanly speaking. But Paul says, that's not the gospel. Don't forget, Greek thinking is not the gospel. Human reason is not the gospel. Verse 17 of chapter 1. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, nor with cunningly developed reasons and arguments and uh, abstract thinking. No. Lest the cross of Christ should be made of non-effect. Verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. So what he's saying is, don't mix the gospel and Greek thinking. Don't embrace worldly ideology and thinking. Keep the gospel pure. Keep the message of the cross central to everything that you are and everything that you do. Human wisdom creeps into the church. Human ideas creep into the church. You need to be vigilant, to be careful, to understand what that is, to identify, to be discerning about human wisdom. This week, um, there was the headline that the Church of England will not accept gay marriage in the church. And you said, wonderful. But then it said they will accept the blessing on civil partnerships in the church and prayers. And you think, well, I'm confused. I'm really confused. Why? Because it's based on human wisdom, not based on the word of God. What does God say? It's God's world, God's values, God's gospel. Watch out for cliques, watch out for corruption, watch out for carnal wisdom and worldview coming into the church. So, there's a battle for the heart of the Corinthian church and for its future culture concerns. Let's think about the cure more positively. And this is where we get into the first three verses. We won't go beyond this today. Other times I'll bring more than three verses, but just sort of three verses today. Cure. Paul points the way forward for the church. How would you deal with these issues? Well, Paul's got his treatment plan for the problems, for the concerns. He's going to meet them. He's going to deal with these concerns. The treatment plan is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows how they can be solved. He knows how they can be dealt with pastorally. He knows how these things can be worked through. You know, with God's word, and with the gospel of Jesus Christ, every problem, spiritual issue, can be worked through with repentance and belief and applying God's word. And that's what Paul is going to do in this letter. He's going to apply Jesus Christ to their problems. He's going to apply the gospel to their problems. He's going to apply the privileges that they have in Christ to their problems. And that's how he's going to deal with it. That's how he's going to treat them. That's how he's going to bless them by bringing God's word to them, to get them back on track. So he opens Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Paul called to be an apostle. He's just stating again his authority as an apostle. He's called to be one. It wasn't his idea. He didn't apply for the job of being an apostle. It wasn't his desire. God called him. God made him one for his purpose. He didn't volunteer for it. It was a mission. He's a sent one 
by God with a special mission to the Gentiles and the Corinthians, the majority of them were Gentile people. It was the will of God. Well, how would you start your letter? Paul, would you deal with these, Corinth- with these Corinthians? How would you deal with them if you were to write this letter? We've, we've talked about the concerns. Would you start with the concerns? Would you start with the problems? These are the issues, guys. Number one, you've got to stop doing this. Is that how he deals with them? Well, how does he start the letter? Would you launch a warhead at the sins that were damaging the church's growth? Things that were threatening to suffocate the church. Well, he doesn't do that, does he? The Lord Jesus, through Paul, and don't forget this is in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. What is God, what does Christ by the Spirit have through Paul for this church? Well, he calls them to remember what they are. He calls them to remember what they are. Paul was in Corinth for 18 months. He laid a foundation of Jesus Christ and their position in Christ. He preached the truth to them all that time. What is here at the beginning is not new for them. He's reminding them of what he has done for them, what God has done for them. Paul is bringing them back to the gospel blessings, to what they have in the Lord Jesus Christ, of what they are in the eyes of God. So many issues in our lives would be helped and sorted if we grasped what we are in the eyes of God. Well, firstly, he says this, remember that you are the church of God. Remember that you are the church of God. Because he says to them, this is to you. This is to the church of God, which is at Corinth. You are the church of Jesus Christ. You are the church of God. It's by God's grace that you are a church. You're not the church of Apollos. You're not the church of Paul. You're not the church of Peter. You are the church of God. All of you, in your entirety, in your corporate nature, you are the church. He wants them to know that. He wants them to remind them. He wants to remind them of these things. It's bigger than Paul. It's bigger than Apollos. It's bigger than whoever. It's the God's church. Castlefield's church this morning, we are God's church. We are God's church. Corinthians, you belong to God. Castlefield's church, we belong to God. Every believer amongst us this morning, all of us, we all belong to him. We are his possession. We are his. Don't find your identity in any subgroup. Your identity, your status, your class is in God's church. You belong to him now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, it says this, Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. You've been bought You don't own yourself anymore. You are not the Lord of your life, just as I am not the Lord of my life. 
You belong to Jesus Christ. Your mind, your body, your will, your desires, your future. You belong in your entirety. The whole package belongs to God. He is your God. Like Legion, the demon-possessed man who came to Jesus in his mess and in his state, the Lord Jesus changed him and transformed him. What did he do? He said, Lord, I'm yours. What do you want me to do with my life? That's the same with each believer, that we're his to do with what he will. Yes, you might be a husband. You might be a wife. You might be a child. You might be a worker at Rolls-Royce. You might be a teacher. You might be anything Mum, all of these things. But you are also part of the church of God. Let's not forget that. Belonging to him, his church. Notice how he uses a singular word church here. Your unity is in this church. It's singular church. Even though they may have met in other house groups or house churches around the city, maybe one place wasn't big enough for them, yet they have in Christ that unity. They belong to him. But they weren't reflecting that unity, were they, as we'll see. He says, at the beginning of his letter, you're the church of God. Our final hymn this morning is based on the Heidelberg Catechism. What is our hope in life and death? that I, with body and soul, I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. How we forget that. How we need to drum that into our heads and our hearts. But together, we belong. We are not our own. Corporate identity. Race for new life to walk in new life. If you're contemplating baptism this morning, think about it. What you're saying is you're confessing Christ, you're coming forward, you're being baptized, you're joining the church, you're saying, I want to be part of God's church. By faith, you already are. But it's the outward expression of joining. The church of Jesus Christ is the outward sign of the inward reality, that you're walking in newness of life, that you're his now. You're part of a spiritual family. To walk together with God's people. It's also interesting to remember, isn't it? It's not a perfect church. Corinth wasn't. We're not a perfect church either. The preaching of the word and growth in grace, we're to strive towards that. But the church of Christ isn't identified necessarily by our perfection. And it's by what we have in Christ our meeting together to worship him, our loving the truth and the signs of a true church. So remember, you, remember you're a church of God. Secondly, you are those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. He moves from the singular to the plural. He says you're, you're this unified organism of the church of Christ. You've come to him. You've been brought into union with Jesus Christ by faith. You're his possession. You are his now. And uh, the language here reminds us of Exodus 19, verse 6, about Israel's called out. Why? Exodus 19 says, called out to be a holy people, sanctified, set apart, to reflect God. A sanctified people. 
You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. What a privilege we have. None of us, no believer is ordinary. We're sanctified. Set apart for God. Set apart for his service. Set apart to bring him glory and to build his kingdom in the world. Thirdly, remember that you're called (coughs) to be saints. You're called to be saints. Saints, what does it mean? Holy one. You're a holy one. You're not unholy. You have this external, by the Holy Spirit, through union with Christ, you've been sanctified. You've been made holy. You're a saint. The Roman Catholic Church just calls the elite uh, saints, doesn't it? We know uh, that it does that. But so the Bible says that every believer is a saint. Every believer is a saint or one of God's holy people. We've been outwardly set apart, called to be um, a saint. But inwardly as well, he's called us to be holy. He's calling us to live out that holiness that we have in Christ. That positional holiness that we have in Christ is to be lived out in a life of holiness. As we profess Christ, as we confess him, as we walk in ways of holiness, we're to live out the reality that we have in Jesus Christ. We're called to be saints. We'll deal with the effectual call in the next message. In verse 9, but that's what we are, to walk as saints, to walk together in holiness, to grow in grace and in likeness to Jesus Christ, to live a life consistent with our identity and status. It's God's design for us. Think about your life. Do you struggle with these things? Do you struggle with identity? Do you struggle with who you are and what you are and where you fit in and so on? At work, um, well, in the summer, God willing, we're going to, uh, as a family, we're going to France to celebrate a special wedding anniversary. And um, so I took a, started taking a few French lessons. And uh, the teacher um, at work is a lady called Leah Debetta. Leah Debetta. She's originally from the Congo. And she's a mixed race. Um, her husband's Russian. Her first name's Japanese. Uh, she had to flee Congo to go to Russia in the Congolese uh, uh, Civil War. And they ended up living in France. Um, the family was kind of split as, as she went to Russia with her mum, and then the family re- came to France and, and, and lived there and until she was about 18 or, or longer. Now she's over in the UK. And, and all sorts of guys, just not fitting in in life. Who am I? Where do I go? Who do I fit in with? Where is my home? You know, where is, and just feeling incredibly stressed um, and distressed about these things. But then she came to faith in Jesus Christ and she realized that she's part of the church of God. She's sanctified in Christ Jesus. She's called to be a saint. And she said, these things just dropped away. How we realize, when we grasp these things, we realize who we are in Christ, what we are in Christ, how it helps us, stabilizes us, strengthens us. And he says, as well, remember, you're part of a wider community of faith. 
verse 2. Called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. We have a common faith. Corinth, you think you're something. Actually, you're just the same as every other church. You're in Christ. You're part of a wider community. You're part of a wider body, a worldwide body, maybe a regional body, but a worldwide body. And Castlefields, for us as well, we are part of a bigger body than ourselves. God has no lone ranger churches. We could be independent churches, but we're not isolated churches. It was good, wasn't it, on Wednesday to hear for Mark Selby about the work in Hilton. We'll learn about the Christian Union. We'll learn about other churches in other places, don't we? Because we're part of a wider community of faith. We're part of a worldwide body of Christ. Let's not forget that. To pray for it. It says, those who call on the name of Jesus Christ, it's the present tense here. It's an ongoing experience. Are you? Is that ongoing in your experience this morning? Are you calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior? Have you ever called on the name of Jesus Christ? Let me ask you that this morning. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in him? Are you part of the church of God through faith in Christ? Have you repented of your sin? Are you sanctified in Christ? Are you called called to be a saint, to live out a life being in Christ? We're part of a bigger church. We're part of a bigger community. No church is at the center of the universe. Jesus Christ is the center of the universe, and we should worship and honor him. In our small corner here, As other churches are in their small corner, wherever they are, we're called to be saints. We call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. What a wonderful thing. Wherever you go in this world, whichever country, there are believers who call on the name. This morning, on every continent, I'm sure pretty much in every nation, There are those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're part of a global community, a global church, a global body who meets the presence of God. There are two addresses here. The church at Corinth, address one, address two, the church in Christ. And in Christ we join with believers at every location, at every address as we come and call upon the name of the Lord. Our address is Derby Conference Center this morning, but it's also in Jesus Christ, and this was where we worship him. Well, may God help us as we go into this letter. We've looked at the the culture, we've looked at the concerns, and we've looked at the cure. The cure doesn't end here, it goes on. But Jesus Christ, and our position in Christ, and our counsel, from the Lord Jesus Christ. May God help us as we go through. Amen.